You're listening to the Market Leaders Podcast, brought to you by Pipeline Plus. Professional service firms use Pipeline Plus to capture more business from their most important clients, prospects, and referral sources. Pipeline Plus delivers the simplest interface in the marketplace and in-app suggestions on exactly which actions to take to close the next deal. It's used as a standalone app in conjunction with business development coaching or as a CRM companion for more effective sales pipeline management. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit pipelineplus.com. Hello and welcome back to the Market Leaders Podcast. I'm David Ackert, and today's episode is different from our usual format. Instead of featuring a new guest, we've prepared a special retrospective designed to address the concern we're hearing most often from our clients, which is how do we navigate in an uncertain economic landscape? Well, in the current environment, it's even more important to focus on established relationships, billing confidence, and strategic talent acquisition. So today's episode features insights that focus on these topics. Our goal, as always, is to equip you, our listeners, with the tools you need to stay ahead of the curve. During uncertain times, your professional network is your lifeline. Those proven relationships that send repeat work and referrals are the constant in an otherwise unpredictable future. In episode 68 of the Market Leaders Podcast, Steve Martini, partner at Witham, and Larry Braun, partner at Shepard Mullen, discuss the importance of cultivating strong referral relationships. In the following clip, we revisit insights from these two rainmakers. So we've covered a lot of ground here. We talked about uh, the importance of starting with some sort of formal structured group like the two of you met in Provisors. And if there isn't one that's already available to you, seek out organizations where you have some exposure to other people that you can get to know. The social activity, developing synergies with people that you genuinely like, people, as you said, Larry, that you can care about. And as over time, developing that know, like, trust, referral kind of momentum. You also talked a little bit, Larry, about how you sought out social activity with Steve. Let's go on a hike. Let's go on a vacation together. Let's do something outside the confines of you know a business lunch or formal networking, just because it's more fun. And like you said, it, it's got to be fun in order for it to be sustainable. Steve, you talked about seeking out mentors, asking for introductions from them. Their uh, expanded network will invariably be a resource that you can tap into, especially at your appropriate demographic. And it sounds like both of you do quite a bit of mentoring within your firms. So there is usually someone at every firm who's willing to take uh, someone else under their wing and, and uh, set them on the right path. And then finally, you talked about setting reasonable goals, setting reasonable expectations, and preparing yourself to run the marathon. It's got to be something that is sustainable. It's got to be something that isn't overly ambitious. One foot in front of the other over time will get you down the path. Anything either of you would add as we think about uh, what are the sort of the key takeaways for people that are looking to accomplish some of the things that the two of you have accomplished, both in your independent practices, but also in your relationship as friend and referral sources? Yeah, I'll, I'll give two, and then Steve, maybe you can chime in. Uh, the, the advice I give people all the time you talk about is, it's all about people. If you love people at all, and, and you don't have to have a in-depth relationship with you go vacationing. But I find that if I talk to anybody, I'm going to learn something about something, what they do, where they vacation, what restaurants they like, what their practice is, some interesting case. So 
it's all about uh, people and getting to know them and everybody provides value. And if you can give value back uh, and be equally interesting, that's then it's a home run. Yeah, and, and let me add, you know, just, uh, and, and these are both fairly, you know, fairly recent, real quick stories. Um, my wife and I were out New Year's Eve. We're sitting there, we're talking to a couple that's at a table next to us. We just started a conversation. They were nice people. They were going to Italy this summer. I'm going to Italy, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of it, the guys in the entertainment industry, because he was asking me, snuck in a tax question when I told him what I did. You know, by the end of the night, he asked for my business card. And and so all it was was just sitting there, being open, having a great time, and being conversive and stuff. And then as Larry emphasized, it's just knowing people and getting engaged with them. And the quick itch funny story is a few years ago, this me knowing a lot of people, sometimes my wife it's to her chagrin. So we're in uh, Paris, just her and I, our 25-year wedding anniversary in this beautiful hotel, walking through the lobby. And from behind, somebody yelled, hey, Steve. And the look on my wife Allison's face was classic. Like, can we not go anywhere? I said, honey, this is how we're affording the trip to Paris. So it's <laughs> these kinds of relationships. You know, you just build them. And before you know it, before I look back, uh, and, and also, as Larry said, a lot of them are just dear, dear friends. Uh, I remember my son's bar mitzvah. I had two tables of friends who also I do a lot of business with. But they're dear friends, you know, and you develop those kind of in-depth relationships. That's, that's where I believe uh, business comes from. As wallets tighten, it's not only important for advisors to build strong relationships, but also to implement effective pricing strategies that maximize client value. In this clip from Market Leaders Podcast, episode 69, Colin Keefe, partner and M&A chair at Fitzpatrick, Lentz & Buba, talks about the importance of designing a fair and thoughtful rate structure. Check out Colin's philosophy on pricing and his approach to rate adjustments that accommodate clients of all sizes. So when you talk about this range of clientele, it begs the question, you know, how do you position your services so that they're appropriate both for the mom and pop, who are probably going to be a little more price sensitive, and the Fortune 500 companies, the middle market, right? You know, some of these have budgets, legal budgets. Others are very price conscious, and they haven't even anticipated in many cases needing legal work. So how do you approach all of that? How do you think about that in a way that enables you to be sort of all things to all people? It's interesting, and it's been tough. I will say that, as I mentioned before, our position and identity in the Lehigh Valley is important to us. The Lehigh Valley is important to us, and we never want to lose our connection to the Lehigh Valley. Now, I will also say that many of our clients are outside the Lehigh Valley. We no longer think of ourselves as a local firm uh, or even necessarily a regional firm. I'm doing a deal with a UK buyer of a Boston company right now that doesn't have the slightest thing to do with the Lehigh Valley whatsoever. It's just a middle market transaction, and we've become active in middle market M&A. And that's a great thing, but... I at the same time, we don't want to lose who we are in our identity. I will say the base, the foundation of our structure starts with those local businesses. And we have a graduated rate structure. We have three standard rates with a 
delta in between those rates. And the bottom of that rate structure is what we feel is an appropriate level for our services and our transactional real estate, et cetera, services for the local businesses and even individuals, um, high net worth individuals generally, but not always, <laughs> um, you know, certainly not in our domestics groups or our state group. You know, if you're a school teacher and you need a will, come on down. We're happy to help sure. you. Um, So the bottom of our rate structure is priced appropriately for those businesses. Then we have a middle market rate above that. And then above that, we have a large transactional rate. I will say that those two higher rates fall more progressively behind what would be appropriate for the sophistication of our services and what our competitors are charging for services that are commensurate to ours. We are undercharging our large clients. Having said that, we feel that it is appropriate to do that to maintain our position as a firm with our roots here in the Valley and to provide high value services to our clients. We're still charging a little more for the highly sophisticated transactions, but generally we have found we're charging a lot less than our competitors, but we're comfortable with that. And we we don't want to forget who we are and where we came from. Thank you for sharing all that. You know, I'm always fascinated by this topic because a lot of how firms justify their rates tends to come down to a couple of factors, right? One is looking at what other firms are charging. And in some cases, it's well, we're certainly not charging what the you know top AMLAW white shoe firms are charging, but we're charging something that ultimately is going to be perceived as a value to the client while still being fair to us, right? That's kind of where we try to land in the middle there in the sweet spot. But it's all kind of going on inside the lawyer's heads. Do you know? I mean, there isn't a real sort of scientific analysis here. It's not like firms are taking all of the billing rates of all of their competitors and really looking at where they sit in the marketplace. Oh, we're a little more sophisticated than this other firm. So we're going to charge a little more than them. And we're a little less sophisticated than this other firm. Or maybe we don't have the you know reputation of that firm by about 30%. So we'll charge 30% less, right? It's, it's pretty fuzzy in terms of where firms land. And ultimately, I think a lot of it just comes down to lawyers price themselves at the intersection of fear and greed right? What can we get away with charging versus what's not too much so that we lose market share, we lose, you know, we jeopardize our relationship with our client. And I think that this ultimately is true in any industry where you're charging by the hour or you're, you know, setting a price that where it's completely up to you what that dollar number ultimately is. It's how do we maximize our profit? How do we ensure that we are really getting as much as we deserve? But also, how do we ensure that we're not pushing over a line somewhere? And because there's no playbook, because, again, it's really subjective at the end of the day, I'm just curious as to how that process works out uh, at your firm and, and what the thinking is there. We try to be a little more scientific than that. Really? Tell me. Uh, so we, in our most recent round of rate increases, which in light of inflation were a little higher than what we have traditionally done in the past. So in the past, we've sort of had, you know, we're going to go up 4% a year and this and that. And it was fairly formulaic, right? We tried, we did um, analogize ourselves to a more traditional manufacturing business. An hour of our time is our product, is a widget. The, The materials that go into that widget are our talent and our overhead. The cost of talent, especially, um, and overhead goes up. And in order to not compromise on the material inputs and thus compromise the services we're providing, we have to charge more. I mean, again, you stick with the analogy to the widget manufacturer. If 
costs are going up, you can raise prices, increase volume, or lower costs, often by reducing your raw material costs and oftentimes getting worse raw materials. Um, in our case, that would be worse talent. That would end up compromising the level of the services we have to offer. You know, and so that's sort of how we looked at it. We didn't want to compromise on the level of service we offer. We decided that while price is certainly important, and price was very important to, to some of the more senior attorneys at my firm, price was very yeah, important. At every firm, at every firm. But it came down to a discussion of unless we raise rates, we won't be able to hire or retain, which is actually just as big an issue as hiring, our, our people and the level of services we have to offer will suffer. And we would rather offer excellent services at an appropriate rate than satisfactory services at a cheap rate. No, that's that's a fair answer. And I appreciate that a lot of thought has gone into arriving at that number and that there are a lot of forces at work here. You know, it's ultimately an exercise in compromises. I'm curious, what indicators or data points have you looked at from your client base to make sure that your rate isn't too low, it isn't too high? Do you know, is there any kind of a feedback loop there that helps validate that internal analysis? Less than you would hope for. <laughs> um, getting that sort of market data is always a struggle. You look at a couple things. Obviously, we track numbers very closely. Looking at new client origination, you're looking at lost clients, you're looking at pay rates, delays, you know, your overall collections. I find that to be an excellent indicator. You're looking at anecdotal client comments and complaints. Our firm is not so large that we can't get a sort of feel of overall commentary from the client base. And so, you know, we're looking at all that. We just did our most recent increase at the six-month mark this year at the beginning of the third quarter. Uh, and so these numbers are just starting to come in now, uh, and, and we're looking closely at them. You know, we have not seen any negative indicators based on that increase so far. At least we think we haven't. So the other Nothing the, overt, at least. Well, the other thing is sorting the signal from the noise. Right. Obviously, the third quarter wasn't as strong as the second quarter, and the fourth quarter will be less strong still. Is that rates? Is that the economy? Is it both? Is it all the economy? We're working through it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate that it is a moving target. To conclude today's retrospective, let's circle back to episode 70, where I interviewed Eva Wisnick, president of Wisnick Career Enterprises and an expert in recruitment. In this episode, Eva and I discussed the importance of having a proficient marketing and business development team to help your firm thrive in a competitive landscape. In the following clip, Eva shares her insights on how to recruit the people who can help you achieve your goals. So I believe the interview process is really a two-pronged approach. You have two goals going on. One is to assess the talent, and the other one is to sell or market to the talent. And I've often seen, even when I was in law firms for many years, that sometimes the focus would be one prong. There'd be even a borderline interrogation that would go on. So the difference between an interview and interrogation is the tone and the timing. If I ask you questions looking for ideally positives, but also uncovering other things versus asking questions to figure out what's wrong with you, that's when people get most offended and turned off. I think you can get a lot of information from people if you pre-plan, know what your intention is, like you said. One thing I have often seen, more often than you could imagine, is that by the time a partner, maybe a head of practice, a major decision maker gets to meet the marketing talent, 
oftentimes they haven't read the resume, but they also haven't read the job description. They're not even sure why they're hiring this person, right? So I would say anybody who gets in front of a marketing professional at any level, make sure that you actually read the job description so you know why there's a need to hire this person. You can address that. The other thing in both cases is really becoming familiar with the candidate's background. So if you really read the resume before the candidate comes in, there are a couple of things that are going to happen. One is um, you won't start the interview by saying, so tell me about yourself. And I think all of us know that's a code for I've not even looked at your resume. And I'll talk in a second about why that's so important, but you will also not get the max amount of information out of this person because you are trying to read the resume and interview them at the same time. So I would say the preparation is really clear and it's important to know why you're interviewing this person. One of the things I have really come to believe, and it underscores every interview training program I do for law firms, is that every interview is a branding opportunity. So what does that mean? That every person that you stand in front of, sit in front of, whether it's an initial interview, whether it's a full round of interviews or a fourth round of interviews, they walk away with an impression of your firm. And, you know, even if you decide you don't want to hire that lateral partner or that CMO or that marketing manager, they will walk away. And that word of mouth, if somebody says, hey, what do you think of XYZ? Or what do you know about XYZ firm? That reputation gets transferred based on their experience with you. So one of the things I really want everybody who's listening to think about is when your attorneys or you yourself, if you're a marketing professional, interview somebody, how you present yourself and the firm and how they leave feeling about that experience, regardless of whether they get an offer or they accept the offer, that goes a very long way. And the last thing I'm going to say there, because I feel so strongly about this, I was recently in Miami doing an interview training program for a law firm. And I said, um, have any of the lawyers here ever had a bad interview experience? And the hiring partner raised her hand, said, 1987, it was at the Capitol Grill. People have this memory that goes so far back. So thinking about reputation, thinking about how people perceive your firm and how they talk about it, that person across the table from you right now might not be somebody you want to hire, but they could be a referral, a future client, or maybe you'll want them one day as a senior attorney or a partner. So just thinking about it as a long-term reputation building process. And I think identify a few behaviorally based questions. Let's talk about the difference. A traditional interview question might be, tell me about your weaknesses, or I see that you have always been a corporate finance lawyer. So it's closed and you already come in pre-thinking something mm -hmm. and you're looking for confirmation of that versus, you know, tell me about how you hope to use that experience when you join a new firm. It's open-ended, right? And open-ended questions will get you information that you might not have anticipated. They are better for establishing and then going deeper. Oh, tell me about that. Bring me through the process. How did you go about doing that? You have to tell me the name of the client, but how did you build that practice? You know, how many hours a week do you spend marketing? Because how to behave in the past it's most likely how they're going to behave when they get to you, right? Sure, sure. So instead of saying like, why are you planning to leave your firm? Like, why do you want to leave your firm? That's kind of a defensive question, right? Yeah. What I would recommend saying, you know, having had the experiences you've had, what would the ideal look like? If you went to a new firm, what is that you would want that might be different than what you've had before? So, you know, I'm, I think some people are fantastic interviewers. And when you figure out who is because you see their comments and you see how they play out and how they spot talent and are really spot on in terms of their process, get them really involved with the process yeah. and really reward them for that. But just kind of keep track of, you know, what's working and what's not and keep tweaking, but behaviorally based questions, making sure people are prepared for interviews, moving the process along and thinking of every interview as a branding opportunity. I think those are some keys to this whole thing. 
In light of the current economic climate and the uncertainties that come with it, we hope you found this retrospective of the Market Leaders podcast insightful and informative. Our aim, as always, is to provide tips that help you navigate your business challenges. As a follower of our podcast, we value your support and feedback. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review on your listening platform of choice and check the posted notes for additional links and resources. We look forward to reconnecting with you on the next episode of the Market Leaders Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Pipeline Plus. We solve business development problems for professionals around the world. Visit pipelineplus.com to learn more about our technology and coaching solutions.